I do the work of theology and people often think of theology as a kind of explanation of God and, and that what we need to do is get away from explaining God and merely experience God. And I want to say I understand that, but I think there are also explanations that are not reductive that, that will um, hopefully if done well, done artistically through the arts, will, will actually foster experience of God, not sort of reduce God to something Daniel Train is the Associate Director of Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts at Duke Divinity School, where he directs the Certificate in Theology and the Arts program. He's the co-editor of the St. John's Bible and its Tradition, Illuminating Beauty in the 21st Century, and also a 2022 collection we discussed today titled The Art of New Creation, Trajectories in Theology and the Arts. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Dan Train, it's great to talk to you today over Zoom. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's really great to be here. What an honor. So I asked you to come on the podcast and talk about an essay you published titled Love's New Creation, uh, subtitled Reconciling Two Approaches to Theology and Arts. But it bears saying that, that at the outset here that this essay appears in, in a book you recently co-edited uh, with Jeremy Begbie and uh, W. David O. Taylor. This is a book titled The Art of New Creation, Trajectories in Theology and the Arts, published just last year, 2022, by InterVarsity Press. So let me ask you a couple straightforward questions at the top here. How was the volume born, and what led you to write this particular chapter? Um, well, great. Well, uh, the volume grew out of a conference that we were hosting in 2019. And this was a different sort of conference that was seeking to gather both scholars um, and various speakers and church leaders at Duke Divinity School, but also artists, and to have genuine conversations. Um, uh, so we always intended to have a volume that grew out of that, but not too long after that, COVID hit and shut down and the pandemic. And so um, as we were putting together essays and collections from that, that also was clearly forming this volume. And so um, it's it's fair to say that both of those things, um, that, that this volume grew out of both of those things, this conference and um, the pandemic time. Um, as for my own essay, it's, it grows out of really teaching um, my uh, I teach a course in theology and the arts, and and this this is a kind of central question for both people in churches, church uh, community settings. Um, they're really interested in how do I make sense of these things? How do I um, how do I use the arts in in my setting in an appropriate way? So it's grown out of um, conversations with many many students and my own wonderings. Okay, it's a very fine essay. It's why I invited you to come on here and talk about it. Uh, but let me, before we get to the essay, let me ask you about the field of theology and the arts itself. You know, one sees um, more and more work on this subject. At least I see more work on this subject. Right? Um, even worked in this area myself a few years as, as an English professor uh, exploring literature and spiritual experience. Though for me, that was been more of a, a subject matter more than a self conscious, you know, kind of relationship with the field per se. In your experience. Um, is the field of theology and the arts, here's four, four options here. Is it A, established? Is it B, emerging? Is it C, both? Or is it D, neither? I'm, I'm going to go with C on that one. Um, yeah, there's a sense in which, yes, the kind of questions of theology and the arts have been around for a very long time. And even in a disciplinary way, they've been parts of, say, fields of visual art and uh, theology or religion, or literature and theology, religion, music, et cetera, those, those have always gone hand in hand. I think what may be emerging is both a sense of 
all of those disciplines coming together for a larger conversation of theology in the arts and um, and also a, a way of doing it where it's not simply, say, art critics or those trained in a specific art field, but also theologians, artists. And so it's, it's possibly also a different way of having those conversations. And I'll say just within my context, um, I think uh, uh, seminaries and uh, divinity schools and, and centers of theological training are very much in increasingly having art programs and thinking about theology and the arts within their programs. So in, in those sorts of ways, I think it's it's very much an emerging and very quickly growing field. Yeah, fantastic. I actually have students um, who've gone on to grad schools and divinity schools getting uh, degrees in, in um, arts and religion. And I'm excited about the field. I think it's really great. I, I've, I, and it, it leads to a lot of really uh, important, sophisticated thinking about the, the conjunction between these two areas, theology and art, in ways that I find really mutually illuminating. Uh, that was, I asked you a multiple choice question. They get harder from this point forward, Dan. Okay, so, <laughs> okay, so uh, let's go to your essay here. Um, the takeoff point for your chapter in the volume is a statement of Augustine's uh, in his work on Christian doctrine. And here's that sentence. He says, some things are to be enjoyed others are to be used, and there are others which are to be enjoyed and used. So that's such a central uh, sentence to your essay. I'm curious, did you already know what you wanted to discuss and you happened to find that observation of Augustine's, or was the observation of his the impetus for your essay? Um, I knew of the Augustine before I had the idea for the essay, for sure. Um, and then as I was trying to formulate the question, it came back to me realizing that I had encountered the way he'd framed this a long time ago. And in fact, I, I, I regularly uh, come back to On Christian Doctrine, Augustine's On Christian Doctrine, because it's such a central text for thinking about theology and the arts. And so it became a way of framing this conversation in a broader, broader context. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, you know, those two positions there, kind of, you know, use and enjoyment, they sketch a kind of a debate about art that goes way, way back. I'm thinking about the ancient Roman writer Horace, for example, who asserts that art, or as he's writing about it, poetry, uh, exists to instruct and delight us, right? Instruct and delight, use and enjoyment, <laughs> there you are again, right? And there are multiple other versions of this distinction all up to the present day. But with, as with so many things in the world, this one acquires a bit more gravity by being mediated through religion, right? Um, we'll get to the particulars of your argument in a moment, but I'm wondering how you understand the stakes of what you're arguing in its relationship with religion in particular. Yeah, um, I think to answer that, I need to clarify Augustine's understanding of use and enjoyment yeah. is maybe a little bit different than we're thinking of it today. For us to say you use something almost always carries already negative baggage with it. It's as if to say you're abusing something just to say you use it. I think he's thinking of these, Augustine is thinking of sort of ultimate ends and things along the way. And basically anything you can enjoy or full uh, enjoyment as he as he's using the word is the ultimate end. And so um, uh, anything leading up to that way is something you use. And so from the very get-go to answer your question, Augustine is framing this in terms of what is the whole point of this? And well, what are we headed to? What are we made for? And so he's asking big questions as people like Horace and others. Um, but now Augustine is asking, borrowing some of that language and and asking this in a, in a Christian context, how does this shape what ult our understanding of ultimate reality and who God is? So 
that's what's at stake for somebody like Augustine. Yeah. Um, how do I, and I'm defining these terms between use and enjoyment as he does here. Yeah, okay, great. That's a really good distinction. That's a, and it is different than Horace in that respect, it seems to me, right? You bet. Now, you, you, near the beginning of the essay, you kind of, you have some questions here that kind of outline some important stakes of your essay. I'll just read this part of your uh, chapter here and then ask you a question about them. Um, you say, you write this, what vision of God's kingdom undergirds and shapes our engagements with the arts as those forms of human making that have a distinct capacity for shaping our reason as much as our will and affections? What should this vision be in light of the triune God's self-revelation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit? In particular, what would it mean to take the biblical vision of new creation as the beginning and end for all our conversations about use and enjoyment of arts. Okay, right, this context, new creation, right, which is the volume focus, and your essay brings around to that, and it's a great way to kind of address this subject. But I'm curious, just a hypothetical, say you weren't focusing in the volume of your essay on new creation, per se, through what other kind of large theological idea might you have mediated the high stakes for the importance of the arts for our understanding of theology, or for the way that we live theology, that is to say, for our religious and spiritual lives? Well, this might be something we'll get into um, uh, a little bit more, but here I'm thinking about just uh, the way this conversation shapes our relationships, um, our postures towards things, how we receive reality, what we then make of it. And so, you know, questions of use and enjoyment, I think that um, is, one of the stakes here is, is what is our relationship to others, to the world around us, and, and how does that, how do we understand what we collectively are meant for, and how does that vision then shape how we live and how we treat others and, and what we do in the meantime? And so, um, yeah, that's that's cut up with new creation for sure, but um, I think those are other ways of framing what's what's at stake here theologically or spiritually speaking. Okay, great. They come back to this issue of art as use versus art as enjoyment, which you've already clarified in light of Augustine's view of what these things mean. Um, in your essay, you enlist two important spokespeople for these two positions. And let's begin here with the first, right? You write that the philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff has played, I'm quoting you here, a singular and at times even solitary role in reminding both the art establishment and academy that use is in fact a central category to the practice of art making and receiving. Okay, provocative sentence. How is that the case? <laughs> well, uh, Walter Storff is writing in 1980s, and really in the context of a certain kind of high art culture, which is repeating a sort of art for art stakes mantra mm -hmm. that say art is utterly useless, um, it, it has so it serves no purpose outside its own ends, and um, Walter Storff is just kind of comes along in that in that culture and just sort of raises a question like, what, what do you mean art is useless? Why are we we keep saying this? Um, at very least, um, you think it has one particular use, and uh, let's at least admit what that is, which is a, a disinterested contemplation. Maybe we can get into that a bit more, but. In a way, he was this lone voice sort of challenging what had become, I think, broadly, this is a character of, of our culture a little bit, but 
kind of a broadly the assumption that art is is utterly useless and 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 can really only be appreciated in those ways. Yeah, great. That that um, argument, art for art's sake, is such an important mantra in the early twentieth century and even later twentieth century for a lot of thinkers and makers of art. Um, and and it's there, it's I find often actually that people who work in theology and the arts chafe against that kind of idea, right? Because for one thing, it's a Nothing else is contradictory, right? Clearly, art exists for more than just its own sake. There are still purposes in art, et cetera. Um, what do you, you yourself, as someone who's both deeply steeped in theology and in aesthetic philosophy, do you find anything about that definition, art for art's sake, uh, or what you might, what you call actually the grand modern narrative of art, how it, how it kind of unshackles itself from purposes, it becomes free of expression. Do you find anything about that argument to be compelling, or do you find it to be uh, just kind of riddled with contradiction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is where we get to in the second half, where with Jacques Maritain, who will very much take up the sense of art for art's sake. And one of the things it's trying to do is, is to sort of keep you from sort of imposing your own agenda on something, on, on projecting perhaps, of merely consuming, one of the things it's doing is it's telling you to pause, wait, something might be happening here that is good in of itself. And 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 so whether you're making art or receiving art, don't try to you know turn it into a moral or a message that I can uh, apply here and there. There's something, there's a kind of pause that happens that I think is really important, really necessary, and is, is the part I try to draw out the second part. Then, in contrast, say with the uh, the, the Walter Store section in that in that chapter. But okay, yeah, those are intentions I feel the church uh, or communities experience all the time. Yeah, for sure, right? And and, and that, let me let me ask you about this. This has a great point. Let me ask you one more question about this kind of art as used before we turn actually to the second half of your essay. Um, a former guest in this podcast, uh, Katie Kresser, who's an art historian. Mm -hmm argues that art is kind of fundamentally a window onto the divine and that our modern concept of art was actually born with Christian art. And the way she explains it, she says that, that Christian art emerged out of a variety of you know, sort of pre-existing cultures and contexts, but that Christian art gives expression for the first time to a concept of art as transcendent. Mm. Okay, that is as a gateway to alternative, maybe utopian possibilities for how we live. And this is an idea which has been so important in the history of art, right, including in these big narratives about art for art's sake. It transcends mere use value, for example. Mm -hmm. But Wolterstorff makes the point, you pick up on this, that art not only enhances our understanding of religion, but also sometimes religion can potentially hamper our understanding of art. Right, can you explain how this is? Well, I, I, I should perhaps clarify there that one of the things Wolterstorff is saying when he describes this a narrative of art, the way in which our modern understanding of art comes into being. I mean, 500 years ago, if I'd said the word art, you would have thought I was talking about just a skill that yeah, I possess. It's not, right. not. And here I say art, and you think actually just visual art. If I say the arts, you might say, well, okay, the fine arts. And then I have maybe five or six categories, and I know what you're talking about. But that field's been narrowed down to one thing, and that's Walter Surge saying, in in large part because. Uh, what's happened is is art has become its own sort of religious thing mm -hmm. and created its own sort of subset such that it has a kind of religious language caught up into it, even as it rejects religious association. So it's now not part of the church. It's not connected to services. It's, it's sort of separated on its own. 
And so I think in that sense, that's what Wolterstorff is saying, the sort of quasi-religiousness of the arts um, is actually very problematic, the way it sort of becomes its own kind of entity, even as that mantra saying art for art's sake, part of his other concern is it actually doesn't allow us to talk about how the arts might play a role in religious settings. Because if I'm singing a hymn uh, for worship, that sort of rules it out as art. And so um, so, so it's kind of a, a twofold thing that I think is a, a helpful way of challenging some of our assumptions and, and, and helping us to rethink some of the things, some of the categories that we're bringing to bear in these, on this conversation. Yeah, great, good. You've already said a lot I want to get back to. I mean, um, that's really important here about, about um, art in its context, you know, either of, well, of worship, say, hymn singing, but also this idea of art making us pause, right, and, and contemplate differently. Uh, which is really important. In fact, that's kind of where you go in the second half of your essay, uh, the chapter here. Let's turn now to this idea of art as enjoyment. You are, you appeal here to the work of Rowan Williams, who in turn is appealing to the Catholic theologian and aesthetic philosopher Jacques Maritain. And they make the point that enjoyment is ultimately tied to contemplation, okay, contemplation, which is obviously a very important theological exercise. And I wonder if you could explain that connection between enjoyment and contemplation as they understand it. Yeah, um, they they do have in uh, in mind a, a sense of, of at least particular forms of art that are particularly well suited to giving us this experience where we uh, continue to be drawn in further and further without necessarily sort of having a, a a quick kind of objective that we've accomplished or something like that, and so. Um, uh, yeah, people like Maritain and Williams really think that, say, a poem or uh, a work of visual art can draw us into uh, this experience that that's ever deepening and thus is ripe, is full of theological possibilities. Insofar as it you know helps us, uh, might might be a beginning point for thinking about a world beyond the immediate world that we experience. Yeah, good. Okay. On that subject, beyond the world that we immediately experience, because there is kind of a tutorial here function, in a lot of ways, right, that art can lead us more fully into subjects and to contemplate them such that the richness of something can become apparent to us over time, right, in contemplating art. Um, one of the important ideas that are associated with that idea in art, and this goes back at least as far as Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, right, is that um, one should always uh, approach art disinterestedly. Okay, there's a word you used earlier, disinterest. And disinterestedness does not mean apathetically, doesn't mean that one should be indifferent uh, to art, but means you're kind of more like objective, kind of taking it in without kind of right away trying to make it mean something that we want it to mean, right? We're, we're open to the work and let the work kind of unfold to us and we're open to whatever the work wants to say to us. Um, but Williams the, makes the, the case that disinterestedness maybe a less apt term uh, than the term self-dispossession, which I found to be an important moment. Maybe it's just me. Maybe you'll say, no, Matt, not important. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but, but is, is that an important shift from disinterestedness to self-dispossession? If so, uh, what's important about it as you understand it? Well, it's at the heart of my um, argument here that actually both both Wolterstorff and Williams share this uh, this deep sense that the artist needs to love what they're doing. And, and so a self-dispossession and Williams framing that he's borrowing again, I think from Maritain, the sense that what the artist does, their particular skill as an artist is to 
sort of receive the material that's before them and love it enough to turn it into something that it's calling out this this bit of wood this bit of of, of marble or these paints or these sounds that they have this 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 sense that they can sort of take that in or receive that experience enough this this event so as to yeah turn it into an, an, an artwork and in that sense i think self-dispossession is really really important because again it's that that kind of re receptivity to a world that exceeds my immediate comprehension that artists do and then that i think by implication, those who receive the art also might be trained in doing if we do that well, though often we don't train people to receive art in that way. Yeah, good point. Well, I'm curious, which which of the arts, I mean, is there is there one area of arts that um, to which you're more drawn than others? I mean, I guess I'm wondering, you know, so when one kind of finds oneself before a passage of scripture and one kind of contemplates that, meditates on that passage of scripture, right, that can yield certain insights, right, through that kind of experience. But it's also true that a work of art can also inspire a real um, uh, awareness of the depths or riches about something about our, either whether it's our human experience or our relationship with the divine. Is there one area of arts that is kind of your particular go-to for that kind of experience? Um, no, but I was, well, uh, I was initially drawn to this whole field through literature and, and in part because I was suddenly experiencing things in literature that revealed to me the, the shallowness of my reading of scripture. Mm. Oh. <laughs> but suddenly a poem or story was taking me in and I was reading scripture in a very different way. And um, so I, my whole career has really jumped off from that point, trying to unravel or think through those questions. Why was literature doing something that um, I, was a, a quasi-religious experience? Was felt like a spiritual moment for me when uh, my engagement with scripture because of the kind of very literal frameworks I, I was using just weren't didn't didn't have that kind of experience so um certainly um literature stories characters poetry language that was been my field of training but since then i've had a great privilege of working in a place where i get to learn from artists in a, a range of fields and become conversant and and, and and understand them better from from their perspectives, for sure. Okay, that that makes my English professor's heart sing that you said that the literature, <laughs> you know, okay, was, which I think is such an important thing. I had the same experience, Dan, when I when I was an undergraduate, for example, and all this extensive literary training that I was doing, it did deepen my the way I would read and understand scripture. Right, you 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 focus differently on the narrative or poetic parts of these things, understand them differently. I also found the converse to be true, right? That that um, because I was accustomed to reading things in Scripture, you know, with a sense that certain things, certain things are sacred or have mm -hmm. have dense value or have ultimate value in the things that we were reading in Scripture, that it made me think a bit more carefully about the things I was reading in literary contexts. Right? That it kind of this, this went both ways in ways that were mutually illuminating, and mutually edifying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's that's been absolutely my my experience as well um and and so I, I hope to convey that to other folks and try to create situations where they might look at a poem or read a story and go like why and then suddenly you know through com talking about it together they go oh i get it there's so much more here and and it's that so much more here that the arts in general i think keeps bringing us into yeah okay great I've got two questions I want to ask you, and I'm trying to answer, figure out which one I want to answer, ask you first. Maybe I'll go with this one first. Let's go with your essay and what you do. 
um, you know, toward the back end of your essay, and this second is a very good move on your part, you don't take a position for art as use or art as enjoyment, but instead you kind of cut a path between them. And this mm-hmm. is an argument that you make. Uh, as you put it, I'm going to quote you here, enjoying God above all else entails sharing in God's own enjoyment of God's creation, including our neighbors and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this is a, an ethical as well as an aesthetic and theological point, right? That love of God both enables and requires a proper love of our neighbor and the world around us. I'm just quoting you again. And I wonder if you can think of an example of how a work of art instills or inspires in you this kind of ethical sensibility. Do you, is that, do you have one that you use in classes, for example, or that comes to mind in your own experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first is, is uh, an example by uh, a jazz saxophonist named Kamazi Washington. Mm. And uh, around 2016, he was commissioned uh, a work for the Whitney Biennial. And, and he's this is a moment in our national politics where everything is just uh, uh, fighting with each other and there's no sort of common ground left or right. And so what he says is as a musician, he wants to take that and challenge that way of thinking and um, uh, creates five songs. And then he and his band try to take each of those five particular songs, but bring them together in one song in the sixth in the sixth part of this album and it's just a wonderful sort of exercise in counter imagination amid all of the vitriol he says i think i want to explore a different option in music and what's great is he does that both in his music and then he commissions his sister who's a visual artist to do that with her artwork and then uh they do a a video that corresponds with the last um uh song that also sort of shows what he, and the album's called Harmony of Difference, um, and shows just these wonderful communities and and their their differences and their uniqueness and their particularities, but the way in which they can also be in a harmony. So that's just a terrific um, example. That last song, I'll play it for my class, and there's not a dry eye in the class. Mm. Everybody's just it's like they're just sense. Here's a vision of what a world where we care about each other might look like. And it's terrific. Oh, that sounds that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. Um, great example. Thank you very much. Here's the second question I wanted to put to you. I wondered how you respond to this one. So I, I belong to a, you know, a book a group here at BYU where I work. And a colleague yeah. last week made a really good observation. Yeah. And she said that art, and she meant here the arts, you know, so literature and fine art and music and so on, that art's one of the few areas where she truly feels okay suspending judgment about what things mean, right? Um, she can invest a kind of poetic faith that doesn't need to know the answers to what things are or why they are as they are. She could say, I think this piece means this, and then say, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe in a year I'll feel differently. Whereas with big life decisions, there's not that sense of relaxation about maybe it means this, maybe it means that. There's more anxiety <laughs> about that. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, um, that kind of suspended judgment seems to insist on a kind of an experience of art that's different from an explanation about art. In a similar way that it an experience of God is different from an explanation about God. And you probably thought about this a lot yourself. Have you wondered whether the most important distinction in our consideration of art may not be in the difference from use from enjoyment, but in the difference of experience from explanation? Or is, mm-hmm. that, or is that a distinction that doesn't hold up for you? Uh, no, I think, I think it does. What I think is really interesting about your colleague's statement is that one, she's 
art is an area where she's learned or has been willing not to sort of control the sort of outcome, right? Which is how typically I think most of, especially in the university and kind of um, scholarly fields, like that's what we need to do is sort of control the outcome and define it, which is also a way of saying that she senses in art this, this, this lack of this need or this willingness to suspend a, a sense of, of reducing something into um, you know, some words that she can kind of wrap that up um, with. And and so in that sense, uh, I very much think, you know, uh, that, that distinction she makes between experience and explanation is terrific. On the other hand, I'd also say not all explanations are reductive. Yeah. So you had teachers and I've had teachers where you walk up to a, a poem or a story or a film and you go, I, I didn't get it. And then a few lines in, they say, look at this. Do you hear this? look, there's like three levels of meaning here. And suddenly you go, oh, and that's an explanation that sort of takes you in deeper. And suddenly, um, and, you know, it's, it's a really helpful way. So I, I say that in part because I do the work of theology and people often think of theology as a kind of explanation of God. And, and that what we need to do is get away from explaining God and merely experience God. And I want to say, I understand that, but I think there are also explanations that are not reductive that, that will um, hopefully, if done well, done artistically through the arts, will will actually foster experience of God, not sort of reduce God to something I can control. I love that. That's a great. That's a great answer to that question. I think that's really, really good. I completely concur. Uh, it's my experience as well. Um, so one more question about the about the essay here. Um, that I, something that I, I love in it. Again, you made the point in making in the essay, but also in our conversation here, that art can instill. Uh, and it's kind of a humility in the face of the staggeringly complex problems that we face, right? That we can suspend judgment here. And also that art can cultivate our powers of perception. And, and you also claim, and I love this about your essay, that art can help us better appreciate new creation as an experience of Christ's grace. As you, I'm quoting you here, you put it, art can help us see how the biblical account of new creation is a genuine invitation into a future promised and already made possible in Christ. Okay, here's my question. Is this a direct or an indirect process for you? That is, when you experience something good through a work of art, is it grace that quietly enables that experience, or does the experience bring grace directly to mind? Go back to your multiple choice and say both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, 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 and here's the, 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 the theological point behind that is, is that, that yes, the sort of the, the nature of this or these these makings are already kind of graced is what I would say um because because uh, they are, exist as part of God's creation but yes the Holy Spirit um uh continues to work so that in seeing this little bit of unpromising wood or this this material suddenly there's the possibility to see it's it's its worth and its value but also what may be made new in that process and how that might sort of um, work towards a, a, a much deeper vision of community, what Wolterstorff would call shalom, and um, and 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 that and so it's both. There's there's this there's this experience, this grace that's already invited us in, but also this grace that 
that enables it to go further and take us into new creation. Yeah, okay, fantastic. That's true too, by the way. You mentioned a piece of wood. If, if I gave you a, a, an older text and said, hey, look at this, there's a chance to for new interpretations that bring new things about, right? So it's new creation, and it's the new creation implicit within older created works, right? That All that yeah. stuff functions the, that way, um, which I love. Thank you. I think every poet takes a word and hears that and yeah. says, oh, what if I make something new by putting it in this line? And suddenly you hear all these resonances that nobody's heard before. That's, that's right. It's, that's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is, yeah, that's right. And I've even heard hear musicians say this that that uh, when they have songs that they played it many times, they find new ways to play them and interpret them, so they don't always understand the song at the time of its recording when it's first written. Right? They they understand it better twenty years later. Um, okay, let me come back to where we started by talking about theology and the arts. Um, where do you see the discussion of this field, theology and the arts, going over the next few years? Is there any kind of discernible path forward that you see? Or, and or is there a particular direction you'd like to see this field go? I think the struggle still will be for interdisciplinary work. What are convergences? What are important ways, differences? That's just, it's just a challenge to both bring different fields of art, but also art in, in context of theology and theology related fields like sociology and anthropology and all these others. And so I think that's both exciting, but also the challenge, like how do we come together in meaningful ways? And, and, I, and I see that that happening. Um, I think maybe it, it particularly in light of uh, the last couple of years, the theology and arts conversation will also wrestle more with social issues. Mm -hmm. um, how have our vision of the arts been corrupted in the West, especially? by uh, racism and sexism and all these other ills and sins that have um, uh, you know, wreaked havoc on our society. And, and how do we account for those and still sort of engage the arts in that context? And I think both of those two things are things that we ought to do and we'll be continuing to wrestle with. Yeah, okay, great. Um, how about then for you personally, right? I mean, you're, you're early in your career, right? You have many things to do still. Um, <laughs> do you have a sense for where you want to go in this field or, or where the spirit may lead you? I'll tell you what I love doing now, and that is uh, meeting with students who suddenly um, don't feel like they have two selves when they come into the mm -hmm. classroom. My art self, my my hobby self that loves this making over here, and my brain that loves this sort of study over here. And they say, ah, I can finally be my whole self together. Yeah. And then the second part, which is very related to that, is the way in which um, people can come together and be in the same room because there's a work of art. We can have a conversation, whereas just about everywhere else on, on every other level, there's, you know, politics or whatever it is, we just can't even start to have a conversation anymore. And so um, the opportunities we have to bring in people, people who are outside of university, bring in artists, bring in uh, community organizers, bring in uh, church folk, et cetera, and, and all be around the same table and have the same conversation. Those are the two things that I love about what I get to do now and, and I, whatever else I'm doing. I, I certainly hope I continue to get to do that in the years to come. That's a great vision, Dan. It really is. And um, I, it, it, it echoes so many of the things that I that I myself claimed I'd love about my own job and what I able to do, you know, kind of 
uh, here in, in what I do at BYU. Um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you for this excellent essay uh, right here in this excellent book. Again, the book, The Art of New Creation, uh, Trajectories in Theology and the Arts. Uh, best of luck to you with your work going forward. I look forward to seeing more things from you. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for reading that carefully and, and having me on. It's been terrific. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.